Hi, welcome to the Set Python Girls Club podcast. I'm your host, Luciana. And I'm your co-host, Kim Madeline. Let's get going. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Set Python Girls Club podcast. I am here with Kim Madeline. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. It's a sad end of summer, Python Girls Club. Let's go. <laughs> I love starting with our regular weather update. <laughs> I am very, very excited to have here with us today a special guest, Eric DeBonte. Hello, Eric. Hi. How is it going? Uh, it's good. I'm down in the Seattle area and it's, it's super warm. <laughs> I, love, I love the weather update on the region as well. That's great. <laughs> Do you, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So my name is Eric Devante. I've been at Microsoft for 17 years, I think, and in DevDiv for 11. Prior to working on Python stuff, I used to work on XAML, which is uh, a family of UI development frameworks that Microsoft develops. So my team owned all of the tooling related to that, like UI designers and performance tools and stuff like that. And then last year, last November, I changed course and, and started working on the PyLance team. That's awesome. And you've been working with PyLance ever since, right? Uh, what was the most challenging aspect of switching from your previous team and joining PyLance uh, and this new product? I think the most challenging part was that the languages that we're using are completely new to me. So Python is not something I've used seriously. I, I used Before Microsoft, I worked on a team that used Python a bit, but I didn't get a lot of experience there. And then I'm not sure how many people are aware, but PyLance itself is written in TypeScript. And I also had no JavaScript or TypeScript experience and also no real experience with languages that were not strongly typed. Most of my experience is in C-sharp and C++. So getting used to types that are, I don't know how to describe it, not real to a certain extent has been quite an adjustment, a like, mental adjustment. Types are not real. They can't hurt you. Is that how I understood <laughs> that? So how did you approach that challenge? Did you like dive into the code base directly or did you look up examples? Did you like poked people who are experts in the domain and like, can you help me with this? How did you approach that? Usually when I'm learning new things, especially languages, I like to just dive in. And then when I run into something I don't understand, I'll search for an answer on the internet. There's a lot of good resources out there. I don't know if we want to endorse anything, but one that jumps to mind is Real Python. I have found a lot of good content on that site. I really like it. I, I own some Python books. One that was recommended to me a while ago was Fluent Python. I now own both versions of it since the second edition came out recently. But uh, it's a gigantic book, and I just can't imagine myself reading through it. And and I use books of that sort more as a reference. Again, when I just get stuck on something or run into some concept that I'm not familiar with. So I've done that, I guess, both with Python and TypeScript. That's awesome. I love the resources you mentioned. Real Python is one that I'm always constantly turning out to because they have so many awesome articles, tutorials. Uh, we even have one tutorial for advanced Python for VS Code tips and stuff like that. So we will also link on the resources of this episode for folks who are interested in checking out. 
and Fluent Python. I definitely want to get the second edition as well. We mentioned the book, uh, I think, uh, a few episodes ago, because I went to EuroPython, and then I met Luciano Hamalio, the author of the book in person. It was such an honor. But yeah, I love the resources that you use to get more familiar with all of these concepts. But speaking of types, and you were saying like you were not used to, languages were not strongly typed, I guess. It's kind of useful, though, that experience that you had, right? Because I think you, well, pipelines depends on PyWrite, which is a static type checker. So there's a lot of like learning that you had to do around type Python too, right? Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely still learning there. Uh, one of the things that I was very surprised by was how much theory there is behind that. You can find a lot of, well, actually, I don't know about a lot, but there, there, there are a number of good books out there on static typing and the theory behind static typing that have nothing to do with any particular language. They're just talking about it from a conceptual or a mathematical standpoint. Yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about that. I am intrigued, though. Uh, I haven't thought about it as like this theoretical, mathematical, mathematical, is that a word? Uh, thing. Uh, how's that? Well, my I'm not an expert, but my understanding is that it's closely related to set theory. So that's why we have concepts like union types. So if you have a function in Python that might return an int or a stir, you can provide a type annotation saying that its return type is the union of int and stir. Uh, and then similarly, some languages like TypeScript have intersection types, which effectively add fields onto an existing type. I don't believe that Python supports that yet. That's super interesting. Uh, there's also the concept of not types. So something is not a stir, for example. That's awesome. Set theory. That makes a lot of sense now. Uh, how's your experience with the typing community in general? Uh, I know that you wrote a pep, which I would love to talk a little bit more about as well. But what are your first impressions on the typing community once you started that work? Yeah, the, the typing community for Python is is really great. There's a mailing list called Typing Sig. If you're interested in static typing related to Python or just static typing in general, I'd encourage you to join that. And there, there are representatives from all of the popular static type checkers that actively participate on Typing Sig uh, from you know, Pyre and PyType and also PyWrite uh, and also, you know, also people from the PyLance team. The, the conversations I find can be a little, maybe the word is esoteric. Like it's, it's definitely a learning experience. If you're not familiar with static typing, I find for myself, at least, you just kind of need to immerse yourself in it and just accept that a lot of the content you're not going to understand at first. And just keep at it, keep reading, ask questions. Uh, everybody there on Typing Sig, despite the fact that they're super knowledgeable, is always really happy to answer questions for people that are new to the space. I love that as an advice for things in general, right? Some things are super complex and hard to understand. Sometimes it's fine to accept that you won't understand everything at first, but keep at it, keep reading, keep practicing. Uh, and then once you come back to it, you're probably going to understand it better. I saw that with your talk uh, that we're going to talk a little bit about more here as well that you gave internally one day around data class transform. 
the first time I saw it, I think I grasped like 55% of it. And and then I recently rewatched it and I'm like, huh, that increased to 80%. So nice. uh, I really like this. I really like that as advice in general. Uh, but yeah, speaking of data class transform, um, I would love if you could just talk a little bit about it. What is data class transform and how was writing a pat for it in the end as well? Sure. So I guess we should start with data class in case some folks are not familiar with data class. Data class is a, a decorator that is provided by the Python standard lib. And it if you put it on a class, it will basically look through the class for uh, what it calls fields, which are class variables that have type annotations on them. And it will automatically add some functionality into the class to help you out some like boilerplate functionality so that you won't have to write it yourself every time you're creating a simple class. So for example, it will automatically create an init method for you that takes each of your fields uh, as parameters or initializing values for those fields. And it can automatically create a dunder equal function for you um, and a wrapper method, things like that. But it turns out that there are several libraries, adders and Pydantic and uh, SQL Alchemy are the ones that jump to mind that have functionality that's similar to data class. But there was no way in the Python typing system to describe the way that they modified your classes when you applied their versions of data class decorator to your classes. So the guy who is the primary author for Pyrite, his name is Eric Trout. He came up with this idea of having a decorator that library authors could use in their data class-like libraries to describe to static type checkers the effects of, of their version of data class. So what does it do by default, for example? Does it by default provide a dunder equal method or not? So if you're using one of those libraries that is using this new decorator, which we call data class transform, now if you're using a static type checker that understands data class transform, so like PyWrite and PyLance do, and uh, I believe Pyre does as well, those type checkers will understand the impact of the, the decorators or meta classes that you're using from these data class like libraries. And for example, when you're constructing an instance of a pedantic data class, when the type checker or the, or the language server provides you with help to fill in the parameters to the constructor, uh, it now knows that each of those fields should provide uh, should have a matching parameter, whereas before they would generally think that the init method didn't take any parameters. That was super confusing to people that were using these libraries when they would try to create an instance of one of their data classes, and IntelliSense would pop up and tell them something that didn't match with their expectations. So. Just to make sure I understood correctly. So data class itself, the, once you add the decorator at runtime, Python will build those uh, methods? Correct. Yeah. 
Awesome. And with Data Class Transform, is it really just providing information for uh, the type checkers, or does it also create uh, methods under the hood? Yeah, Data Class Transform itself doesn't do anything at runtime. Well, it does something very minor. It provides a property on the type that's decorated so that you can tell through introspection that the data class transform decorator was applied to it, but that that's all it does. So the, the actual work of modifying the user's class is something that the library needs to implement. The purpose of data class transform is just to tell the type checkers and other tools what the library is doing to your class. So did you come up with that specification in the PIP and also the suggestion of what needs to be done at runtime? So the idea came from Eric Trout, and he wrote an initial document as a proposal to get uh, feedback from library authors and, and the typing community, some initial feedback. But he was not interested in actually driving the PEP process. So he handed that over to me. So my job was less about uh, coming up with the idea but and more about nailing down edge cases and talking through problems that the community brought up to try to uh, yeah, just wor- work out the nitty gritty details of the PEP before submitting it to the steering council for approval. So that took, I don't know, maybe six months. Was it the six months of back and forth of the community? So like, did you post that on that typing sig mailing list you were talking about? Or how, how did that go? Yeah, well, I guess the first step was just rewriting it into the format that PEPs are expected to be in. There's some expected sections and a particular style that all PEPs have. Okay, fair. If you looked at them before, they, they all look the same. And you have some expectations about what's going to be in there and where it's going to be. And then gave it to Typing Sig, asked for feedback. Uh, and then it was just a lot of back and forth with uh, people asking questions or making suggestions. Uh, some library authors pointing out that their particular approach was not going to be supported and trying to, to figure out ways to solve those problems. Uh, SQL Alchemy in particular had some interesting issues related to fields whose types are descriptors. I don't know, maybe that's that, that may be too complicated of a topic to go into in the time that we have, but addressing that in the PEP took quite a long time. So another question on that topic. So you mentioned SQL Alchemy having like different specific needs. So how how did you make sure you could address this needs? Like, was it like a one-way process? Is it the PEP that had to accommodate for those or was it some kind of compromise that was reached? so that they would also have to change some things so that the outcome of the PEP would be something that could be future-proofed? Yeah, it was definitely a compromise from from both sides. We wrote the PEP, or we, we added language into the PEP to make it clear that we're planning to make additions to Data Class Transform as people start using it and notice limitations that need to be fixed. And the other thing that we wrote in there was language that says, if if data class transform documentation doesn't say what the behavior should be, then the assumption is that classes that are impacted by data class transform behave like data class. So as data class continues to evolve, libraries that use data class transform should be able to automatically pick up that behavior for free. 
as, well, I guess I should say as static type checkers add support for those new data class features, libraries that use data class transform can pick up those features for free in theory. So after the data class transform pep was accepted, I worked with the guy who basically owns data class. His name is escaping me at the moment, but basically we, we looked at how data class itself acted when you had fields that were annotated with descriptor types and documented that behavior so that it could actually be relied on. And previously they had not actually thought about how descriptor type fields should work. So uh, we couldn't actually say very much about them in the data class transform pep. So we're trying to nail down how data class works so that data class transform can behave the same way. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, and the PAP was accepted, so that means it will be out on Python 3.11. Is that correct? Right, yep. That's so exciting. Uh, is, was there anything about the PAP process uh, that surprised you at any point? Well, I don't know about surprising, but the length of time that it took, it, was, it, was, it took way, much, way more time to complete than, than I had initially expected. Part of that was was because I was new to Python, so I had been on the Pylance team for, I don't know, a month and a half, perhaps, when my dev lead suggested that I work on this. So not only was I learning about data classes and the PEP process, but I had to learn about all the different aspects of Python that were impacted by data class transform. So for example, descriptors, so we're talking about descriptors. I had no idea what a descriptor was. and Personally, I find them a little bit mind-bending. So uh, there was a lot of time just to figure out what is a descriptor and, and how do you use it before I could really think about how is data class transform related to descriptors or impacted by descriptors. I love that you had to start uh, a new position with a new team with like the trickiest and most complex of tasks. <laughs> but I guess you learned a lot from it, right? Yes, definitely. I learned that I probably don't want to deal with another pep anytime soon. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, what's the next pep? So it's going to take a while, is that it? Yeah, well, I think I need to take a break for a while before I go back and do another pep. I did enjoy the process. It was fun. But I I like to make people happy, I guess. And the end game where we were having to tell people, sorry, we're not going to be able to do that this time around. Like, we'll think about it for the future. That That was pretty painful. I bet. I think like that would be the part that I would struggle the most with as well. Uh, I'm officially a people pleaser, so <laughs> not going to be writing peps myself then, knowing that it's hard to get to something that will make everyone happy. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the feedback, Eric. Good to know that I'm not going to touch that with a 10-feet pole either. <laughs> I think. I mean, I think it's it's worth trying. If you have something that you're passionate about, you, sh you should definitely consider doing it because that's just how the Python community works. I find that people come to Typing Sig and say, hey, I have this great idea for doing blah. And generally the response, assuming people are optimistic about the idea is, great, why don't you write a pep for it? Nobody is generally going to say, oh, th that's a good idea and I'd be happy to write the pep for you. So if there are things you'd like to see in Python, definitely consider it. So it sounds like, yeah, as you said, if you're very passionate about an idea, right? Because it sounds like it's almost a labor of love or, or maybe most, mostly labor in your case, I guess, where you, if you put in the time to write in a pep, it means that you're really invested in your idea, right? 
I don't know what the acceptance rate is for pips. Like how many of them are accepted? How many of them are rejected or just sent back into review mode? Like you need to update it or whatnot. I mean, I guess it's a good thing that yours was accepted. Yeah, I'm not sure about the rate either. I guess that makes me want to say before you write a pep, you should definitely talk with the community about it and make sure that people are generally optimistic about it. So if it's a typing pep, go talk to typing sig. If it's a packaging pep, then there's a community around that. I would not invest a lot of time in writing a pep if you don't have a pretty good feeling that it's going to be approved. That makes a lot of sense. And peps do need sponsors as well, right? Do you know how that process works? Well, for the typing SIG, I think there might only be two people that are generally doing it these days. So basically, you just ask one of them, and hopefully one of them is willing to do it. There is a group of people that are allowed to do it. So not not anybody can be a sponsor. You have to be in a particular group. And I, I actually don't remember what those folks are called. If it's the PEP editors that are allowed to do that, uh, I don't remember. That makes sense. So... Yeah, I'm not going to be inviting you, Kim Adeline, to sponsor my next pet then, because apparently we're not allowed to. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so sad. I'm such a sad python. Sad not pet riding python girl. <laughs> That's perfect. And given we are sad non-pep riding girls now, uh, <laughs> I think it's the moment to bring a song to celebrate. Uh, this sentence involving not writing pep. So <laughs> Eric, the question, what is your favorite sad slash emo song? Yeah, I had to think long and hard about this, actually. I, it turns out I don't think I am really familiar with any emo bands. I found this website called isthisbandemo.com and every band I put in there that I could think of was not emo. Uh, so in celebration of the fact that you guys are Canadian, uh, the, the sad song that I wanted to propose is by Rush and the song is called Nobody's Hero. Oh my goodness. I don't know if you guys are very familiar with Rush, but, uh, they've been one of my favorite bands since I was in high school. I love Rush. Well, my uh, dad is a huge Rush a fan. And once I moved to Canada, that's all I would hear. It's Rush yeah. country. I, so I love your choice of song. <laughs> and I love the website. I do appreciate the diligence in even finding a website to make sure that the songs you were, <laughs> the bands that you were <laughs> going to reference were emails. I love the sad song that you chose. And then what is your favorite ice cream flavor to eat as you're listening to Rush or anything else, really? <laughs> so my, my wife's friend owns an ice cream store down here in, in our town. Uh, it's called Swanky Scoop. And they have a flavor there called Golden Milk that I really like. It's uh, turmeric and black pepper and some other, I think, Indian spices. I think Golden Milk actually is a traditional Indian drink, so it's probably a frozen version of that. Interesting. I've seen golden milk in some cafes. Yeah, that is a turmeric-based drink. Pepper and ice cream, though. That sounds like an interesting combination. Does it make you sneeze? No, but it does start building up on you. Like Initially, you don't notice it, and then by the time you get to the end of it, it's uh, pretty hot. I don't know. It's black pepper. It's not uh, It's not cayenne pepper, but it, it's uh, you, you notice it. It's see. only one scoop at a time. Do you get discounts because the ice cream shop is your friends? No, my my son works there actually, oh. and he refuses to do any anything for us because he doesn't want to be uh, be seen as favoring us. I guess. I love 
that. We went there the other the other night for ice cream, and I think he purposely avoided us <laughs> in the line. He's just being ethical. I love that. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Eric. And thank you so much, Kamadeline, for co-hosting with me. Thank you both for being here. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Sad Python Girls Club podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.